Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a black history moment. And I'm Bo, and I'm here to tell you some things that you possibly have never heard. But I'm here to tell you some truths, and I'm here to tell you some facts. A couple of my listeners have asked me how come I have not covered the Tulsa Greenwood, Oklahoma massacre. And the reason for that is society let that knowledge slip out in the 1990s. And it's a story that has been told every Black History Month on PBS. But the truth be told, Greenwood, Oklahoma was not the worst riot that we had endured. But they do not talk about them. As a matter of fact, they could tell a story of a massacre against us every week on TV for a year, maybe even two years. But still, it's said... Why can't we get over it? Well, this is why. Because our history is still being hid from us. But today, I'm gonna break you off a little piece and tell you a story about Ochi, Florida as we slip into darkness. Julius July Perry left Travelers Rest, South Carolina as a teenager filled with enthusiasm for the opportunities post-construction era Florida would bring. He also had two of his partners with him, Mose Norman and Valentine Hightower. They had nothing but their dreams and a strong work ethic. Although the shadows of the Confederacy still lingered in Central Florida long into the 1900s, pioneer Ochoi was a model of a post-slavery economically integrated Southern town. The next three decades went well for the transplants, very well in fact with a thriving black middle class beginning to emerge in Ochoi, These three friends were perhaps the most prosperous sons because by then, each were owners of multiple large tracts of farmlands on the north side of town and had attained wealth and status even envied by the local whites. To be sure, despite the relative tranquility and economic opportunity, there was still a prevalent undercurrent of racism in Southern society. In the cities and towns across Florida, distinct geographic lines had been drawn between the black and white communities. And having business dealings with the inferior race was one thing, but having social and religious crossover was still many decades away. Ochoe was founded in 1850s along the western banks 
of the pristine Stark Lake as a camp for laborers working the farms. A village grew up around the camp and became what is now the downtown historic district. By 1920, there was just over a thousand residents in the unincorporated town, and almost half of them were black. In fact, the African-American population grew so large that two distinct black communities developed, sandwiching the white-dominated downtown district. The southern black community, known locally as the Baptist Quarters, sprung up around the Friendship Baptist Church, an unpainted wood-framed church founded in 1896, cutting through the heart of downtown. Blueford Avenue is the main north-south artery through Ochoa, and in the years before Highway 50 was built, made it a straight shot. It took about an hour by car to arrive in downtown Orlando from Ochoa. Heading northward on Buford from downtown and crossing the railroad tracks, you find the northern black community, commonly known as the Methodist Quarters. Its namesake, Ochoa African Methodist Episcopal Church held its first services in 1890. It was the Northern Methodist Quarters, the older of the two neighborhoods, where the three amigos built their homestead. They were next-door neighbors, even, all settling along what is now Apopka Ochoa Road. July Perry had become the well-respected godfather of the black community. He served as a deacon in the church and the local labor leader or straw boss. It was said that anyone seeking to employ black laborers need to speak with him first. He was admired, brave, and a rational thinker, a sort of civil rights leader before there was civil rights movement. He encouraged young blacks to be educated and stand up for themselves as first-class citizens. My man. Perry's wife, his three sons and daughters, lived on a large estate that included their home and several barns and outbuildings. They regularly opened their doors to anyone in need. If anyone was in trouble, they knew they could find advice and sanctuary in the Perry home. Meanwhile, 59-year-old Mose Norman and his wife, Elisa, liked to live a little more lavishly, enjoying the fruits of the years of hard work farming, the 100-acre family orange grove. He drove around the brick-paved streets of downtown proudly sporting a fancy six-cylinder Columbia convertible with white sidewall tires, silver spokes, and elegant storm curtains instead of the side windows. Mose was definitely a well-known and prosperous man about town. It was said that he was once offered $10,000 for his groves, a huge sum for that time, but refused to take it. 
But unlike his two friends, Valentine Hightower had a much more low-key personality. He knew well the dangers Negroes opened up for themselves when they got too uppity in the still very white, super racist society of the time. Him and his wife Jane lived a modest lifestyle and raised their kids to mainly keep to themselves. They answered politely when spoken to and preferred not to draw too much attention to themselves. My father was kind of humble. Hightower's son, Armstrong, recalled many decades later, he didn't take no chances on nothing. As the summer of 1920 rolled around, July was still feeling that same kind of optimism about the future that he had when he first arrived, and for good reason. Business was booming. His orange and cucumber harvests were larger than ever, and the upcoming November election had everyone in the black community hopeful that they might see the first ever Republican elected in the Florida Senate. My friends, you see, the political arena in the South of the early 20th century was dominated by white Democrats, sometimes known as Dixiecrats. The states north of the Mason-Dixon line were Republican. Blacks, if involved in politics at all, were almost exclusively Republican. Fueled largely by an influx of Northerners moving into the Florida frontier, the Republican Party's influence slowly began to creep into the Deep South, and they brought with them winds of an early-stage civil rights movement. Whether by sincere concern for the African-American plight or by political opportunism, These Republicans sought to work with the black population to empower them and, more importantly, registered them to vote. Although we were granted the right to vote under the 15th Amendment to the Constitution in 1870, most blacks did not exercise the freedom for decades. Reasons for this vary from intimidation to indifference to voter suppression techniques such as poll tax. After slavery was abolished at the end of the Civil War, the Northerners instituted an era of Reconstruction that was resented by white citizens of the South. To them, it was a punishment and power grab being handed down by the Yankees. They abhorred the changes to their way of life and held ill will toward the northern carpetbaggers who sought to impose it. In the decades that followed, the continued subjugation of black population was codified by Jim Crow laws, segregation, spoken or unspoken cultural rules, and even Ku Klux Klan-sponsored intimidation and violence. Far from an undercover secret society of extremists, 
At the time, the Klan was a major political and cultural force in the region. What is now Orange and Lake Counties were amongst the strongest footholds the Ku Klux Klan had in the state of Florida. The Klan held rallies and met regularly to show their force, and it is said that at the time, 90% of the law enforcement officers, judges, public servants, and lawyers in Winter Garden and Ochoa were members of the Hooded Order. For the first time in the 1920 elections, women would also have the right to vote, including black women. Throughout the South, the Republicans worked with prominent local black leaders on voter registration drives within their communities. They spread the word, signed up people, in some cases paying the poll taxes for those who could not afford it, and encouraged them to turn out on election day. Newspapers, the dominant form of media at the time, played a major role in firing up the conservative Democratic base. Great fear and uncertainty were sparked in whites around the state by inflammatory headlines of how the Negro population would soon take over and democracy be overrun by servants and cooks. This inflamed many local whites, and especially the Klan, who sought to maintain both white and democratic dominance in state and local politics. Blacks, they felt, were beginning to reach above their station and needed to be cut back down. On November the 1st, the day before the election, with robes and crosses, the Klan paraded through the streets of the two black communities in Okoye late into the night. With megaphones, they warned that not a single Negro will be permitted to vote, and if any of them dared to do so, there would be dire consequences. Election Day came and at least some blacks did attempt to vote in Orange County. However, none were permitted to enter their respective polling places. White enforcers camped out around the centers and poll workers were given instructions to deflect their attempt. One by one, would-be black voters were turned away, either by threats of violence or by poll workers who found their names mysteriously absent from the voter registration rolls. Mose Norman would not be so easily deterred. After being turned away that morning on his Ochoa precinct, he rode to Orlando to seek the counsel of Judge Cheney. The attorney instructed him to write down the names of any African Americans who were not permitted to vote and also the names of the poll workers who had denied their constitutional rights. Cheney also said a lawsuit against the county could be brought to contest this violation. Norman returned to Achoi with these instructions along with a handful of black citizens again seeking to vote. After again being forcibly turned away, he demanded the poll workers' names and exclaimed, 
We will vote by God. And an altercation ensued. Overpowered and beaten, he escaped from the scene with the help from friends. As Norman fled, the now inflamed groups of white, largely Klansmen, convened about what to do about the situation. They determined that they had to bring Mose Norman to justice and set an example for any other blacks who dared threaten their white democratic monopoly on local authority. Outraged but fearful, Norman visited the home of his good friend July Perry. The increasingly angry white mob headed toward the home of Mose Norman, but were tipped off that he was hiding out at the home of July Perry. They surrounded Perry's house, but Norman had long since left. The former police chief of Orlando named Sam Salisbury knocked on the door of the wood frame home. Perry knew they were cornered and he reluctantly answered the door. The officer insisted that Perry come with him, to which 51-year-old replied, Yes, sir, boss, let me get my coat. At that moment, Salisbury grabbed Perry by the arm and put him in a headlock, thinking he might run. Perry's daughter, Caritha, responded by putting a rifle in the officer's belly. Salisbury instinctively brushed the weapon aside. In that intense moment, the gun fired, shooting the officer in the right arm. He retreated out of the door and rolled on the ground to escape. A hail of gunfire erupted in both directions. Two of Salisbury's men were killed when they tried to storm the house by kicking in the back door and the Perry family fought them off so well that people thought there were a large number of people in the house. The mob retreated temporarily to get reinforcement and additional manpower from clan members in surrounding cities. Well, my friends, that music tells me that my time has ran out, and I don't want to keep you too long, because I want to keep you interested. Join me for part two of the Ochoa Massacre. Look forward to talking to you. It has been my honor. <laughs>